0: Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vine Pairs Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. El Capitan is not the world's best known cocktail. That much is safe to say. But one drink's weakness is another's strength. And I'm going to let you into a little secret, listener. El Capitan is one of those drinks I like to group into the category of secret weapons. If I'm having cocktail-loving friends over for a drink, I'll whip one of these up, wait for them to take a sip, nod my head and say, yep, you're welcome. What do they call it? They call it El Capitan. At which point it's also a good idea to elaborate. This is, in reductive terms, a Manhattan made with pisco, and garnished with an olive. As is so often the case, I'm duty-bound to point out it's also so much more than that. El Capitan is a snapshot of Peruvian history, A celebration of the country's iconic national spirit. Those who are so inclined can take a martini rather than Manhattan approach, turning a simple template into an opportunity for endless creativity. Here to divulge more and dive deeper on all of the above is Chicago-based Mike Ryan, the Corporate Director of Beverage for Acurio International. In that role, he oversees the beverage program across all of Acurio's locations in the USA, Latin America, Europe, and the Middle East. So that ain't just a fancy title, and what it does mean is that Mike is basically one of, if not the largest buyer of Pisco in the US. It's Quebranta, Italia, Acholado. It's a simple template and a secret weapon. And it's all right here on the Cocktail College Podcast. We're in the virtual studio today, the virtual cocktail college studio, and we're joined by none other than Mike Ryan. Mike, coming in, beaming in at us today from Chicago. That's right. It's a beautiful day here. Beautiful day. Sunny, 80s, <laughs> no clouds, no wind. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a reason that we're known as the Miami of the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, today's drink is El Capitan. There's a few things I want to get into off the bat. The first of which, this got me thinking before the episode, that... Elevator pitches for cocktails are a great thing, right? They're great to describe a drink to someone who perhaps is not aware of what it is, but they can also be very reductive. So in the case of today's drink, you might want to describe it as a Pisco Manhattan or maybe even a Pisco Martini. But I think there's so much more to this cocktail and I'm excited to get into that with you today.
1: Yeah, agreed. It's a, it's a cocktail that I I knew of when I started getting into the, the cocktail world, um, you know, became a little familiar with this drink, but only ever as just Pisco Manhattan, right? And the more that I learned about it, and especially since stepping into my role with Acurio and spending a lot more time in Peru, the more that I've learned about this cocktail and the history and the different ways of making it, there's incredible amounts of complexity um, and variation that you can go into with this cocktail. Mm-hmm. And
0: so, you know, I'm going to guess, I'm going to wager that most of the folks who do listen to this show, just by saying the words Pisco Manhattan, they have a good idea of what it is, right? It's going to be Pisco and some type of vermouth, so we don't need to cover that too much now. And that does allow us, therefore, to jump right into the history of this mm-hmm. drink, which I believe also may have informed its name. And before we do, we got to make a decision here. And we've done this before when we did El Presidente and El Diablo, we're going with either el or the, right? But it's, it's never mm-hmm. going to be the El Capitan. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And
1: for me, it's always El Capitan. Um, that's, you know, I, I, I work in a, in a Spanish speaking company. Um, I work with a lot of primarily Spanish speaking folks. And, you know, so for me, it's El Capitan. I definitely understand, especially for people who, you know, either don't speak Spanish or don't you know, have a lot of Spanish. The expectation to just sort of wrap up any cocktail and then append the to it, totally get it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it is just el
0: capitán. And there is kind of when you're when you're writing or when you're speaking about drinks, there is kind of this awkward thing when there isn't a the in English in front of it, right? It it just feels mm-hmm. odd. But both of us here today, I think we're comfortable. We're going the L route, uh, mm-hmm. and then the second part of that, capitán. Tell us, Mike, where does that come into this
1: drink and the history of um, of this concoction? So to get into Capitan, the Capitan part of El Capitan, um, you kind of need to go back to the the very original old origins of the cocktail. Um, Pisco is the base. Pisco's been been used in Peru for a very long time. We only started seeing vermouth arriving in Peru. Uh, around 18, late 1850s, 1859, 1860 is about the first time we started seeing it, and originally you, there's you know huge Italian population in Peru, right? We we see tagine um, verde, uh, which is sort of uh, a riff on pesto, um, has become a major part of the Peruvian culinary canon, and so it makes sense that when you're moving into this country. You're going to bring some of your drinking habits um, from from your country, and then they're going to mingle and melt, right? And that's really the, the the history of Peruvian culinary culture is this sort of melting pot, right? So originally, we would have seen most likely just equal parts Tisco and you know the the the, uh, the classic Italian sweet vermouth mixed together, nothing added, no water, no ice, just room temperature, um, probably consumed as a shot, um, you know just uh, potentially just as an aperitif, uh, you know, likely it was called uh, 20 centavos, 20 um, centavos. That's about what it cost. And this was fairly popular throughout Peru. Um, you really started seeing the evolution into El Capitan when you had these cavalry captains, these riders up in the Puño Mountains, and they became enamored of this cocktail. You know, it's a little bit of a taste of home, very easy to make. Um, you know, and when you're, in a military campaign, in sort of the hinterlands, mm-hmm. uh, you're not necessarily going to pop into your local pub, uh, you know, order a, a rainbow gin fizz and, and expect something, <laughs> uh, you know, even remotely close to the original. So it's easy to get, uh, easy to get right, you know? So they would order this cocktail and the bartenders would say, you know, Si, sí, uh, you know, Barati, uh, Mi Capitan, El Capitan. And that's where we start to see the evolution of the name, right? And that's how these names uh, ultimately evolve and change.
0: Mhm. And I believe I was reading that, you know, the the 20 centavos, you know, part of that as well. Uh, this is a little bit of a detour, but one I find fascinating that would have been served at these things called pulperias, which um mm-hmm. as someone who used to live in Argentina, I find fascinating. They're kind of what like a bodega general store kind of thing, like a a place where you could go to kind of get maybe like a corner store
1: for us today mm-hmm. in the in the states, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, you you see things like that in Peru everywhere um, where you don't have as much of the stark division of like first place, second place, third place that we do, uh, especially in the U.S. Right. You see a lot of these um, establishments that sort of, you know, we're doing one thing. People are here. Well, let's also do this other thing and let's also do this other thing. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned that very likely
0: it might have been 50-50 early on, perhaps consumed as a shot mm-hmm. um, and room temperature. At what mm. point do we start to see this drink evolve into what maybe is prepared more modernly with, um, mm. you know, probably be a heavier ratio of Pisco, maybe that two to one model, but also starting to incorporate ice into things?
1: So, you know, I've seen references to um, to this cocktail in connection with the uh, Bar Inglés and in the Grand Hotel Bolivar in Lima. I've also seen references to this cocktail popping up um, at the old Waldorf Hotel in New York, and, um, it's likely, you know, in the 1910s, 1920s, um, that's when we were, we would have also been seeing sort of the, this proliferation of, of ice into the cocktail world as well. Um, nobody unfortunately sat down and, you know, uh, when they created it, wrote it down and said, okay, guys, this is it. This is the moment. Um, you know, I, I think anybody who's studied drinking history runs into the problem that the drinking history is typically written by the drinkers Um, and after two or three things start to get a little muddled Mm -hmm. Uh, pun intended
0: (laughs) and any idea um this this might be a tough one to answer but oftentimes Mm -hmm. when we talk about the uh the spread of cocktail culture and the use of ice within cocktails certainly in north america we know that that ice is coming down from the north obviously Mm -hmm. being in peru you're going to be I don't know. Yeah. Closer to the the Andes there and maybe some yes. source of, ice. you know, where do we know where the ice might have been coming from at this time? I, I just find this topic fascinating.
1: No, you know, and that's a, that's a great question. It's not something that I've been able to really dig into. Um, you know, it likely would have been coming from either higher up in the mountains or, you know, imported up from a little bit further south. Um, the other thing, too, is that cocktail cocktailing really didn't explode in Peru until like the 70s, the 80s, right? Prior to that, you know, definitely, I mean, obviously people were making Pisco Sours, people were making some of these cocktails, but it it was never the sort of uh, proliferation that we had in the States, you know, pre-Prohibition, kind of like on its, you know, deathbed during uh, Prohibition and then up until like the, you know, the 50s and then that renaissance that we had in the 90s um in peru it sort of it just wasn't that important right you, know, you you were you were drinking to kind of get through the day uh pisco sour was you know a lot of what people drank but at the same time silcano another very classic cocktail just pisco and ginger ale uh very very simple very easy to prepare and so these are the sort of things you know they're they're a little bit easier to pair alongside food a little bit easier to prepare without uh, extensive cocktail knowledge you would see those more more commonly mm mm-hmm. and that kind of again that
0: shorthand way of referencing it the pisco manhattan i think it gives us a very good idea of of the build of this drink and possibly Mm -hmm. even the ratios uh, and the ingredients there but what about the flavor profile what are you looking for what what should our listeners expect if they've never had an if they've never had el capitan as a drink what should they be thinking and
1: and looking for in that i mean pisco manhattan is the best way to describe it right um the sort of standardized recipe that we use is two parts pisco, one part sweet vermouth, um, dash of Angostura bitters. We'll stir this drink. We'll serve it uh, typically up in a cocktail glass. Um, and the garnish is where, you know, I've talked to folks who prefer uh, an onion. Uh, I've talked to po- folks who, who insist that a green olive is the only way to garnish the cocktail uh, cherry. All of those make sense. We actually do a swath of orange peel um, just to help accentuate some of those floral notes of the pisco. There's a lot of variation. I'll get into that around, you know, which pisco and which remove, and we'll talk about that shortly. But um, in terms of the actual base flavor profile, it's going to have all of those familiar sort of rounded uh, sort of uh, sweet and botanical notes that you get, you would expect from a Manhattan. The Manhattan adds into it that sort of rich underpinning of the oak notes, right? those vanilla notes that you extract from the bourbon and from the rye whiskey. Instead, for El Capitan, we're adding in with the Pisco, we have these really beautiful you know, floral and fruity top notes. Um, you get much more of that kind of uh, like almost pungent citrus aroma on the nose. And so it ends up being... I don't want to say like a thinner cocktail because I don't think that's doing it justice, but I tend to think of a, of a classic rye or bourbon Manhattan, especially a bourbon Manhattan. Right? It's this big, fat, weighty, round body to it. You know, it, uh, then a rye will have a little bit more pepper and spice, and then with pisco, you're just really, you know, bringing a lot more acidity and this kind of like dry, clean line. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to to sort of really highlight all the botanicals in
0: that vermouth. So like the more of those high tones in there where, where yeah. you know, yeah, if you're using a musical analogy, then the Manhattan, especially with bourbon or, or rye mm-hmm. is going to have a lot more bass to it. This thing is, yeah. is is operating at a different level.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A little more of that tenor, almost an alto note. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think before we do get into the ingredients, it, it, it's worth talking about here because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are fans of, of, you know, cuisine as well as they are cocktails and drinks and, you know, just recognizing what an incredible past 20, 30 years it's been for for Peru as a nation and the incredible diverse range of cuisine that that is prepared there and has
1: gone on to uh, far reaches around the world. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, Peru is um, almost more than the U.S. in many ways. Um, It's really a country of immigrants um, that still has a deep connection with the indigenous people. And so, of course, you have, you know, that Spanish influence. There's a lot of African influence. There's a lot of, you know, Chinese influence. And we see the African influence in our Criollo-style dishes. Um, you know, we see the Chinese influence in all the woks, right? The Chifa-style dishes. Bomo Sotaro being, you know, the most popular and most famous one. Um, you know, there's a huge uh, Japanese influence, right? One of, when, Japan, when Japan opened, um, kind of, you know, came out of its seclusion Peru was one of the first countries that welcomed Japanese immigration. And so we have this huge Nikkei influence, right? And you see that, you know, in our, in our uh, nigiris and in our sushi rolls. I mean, there's, you know, Italian influences, right? In the 1860s, 1870s, there was this huge uh, guano boom, right? And there's this massive influx of, of Italians. And so you see, you know, on the culinary side, peruvian menu and I, I experienced this when i joined this company a peruvian menu can look really confusing because you look at it and you see you know green noodles you think pesto well it's actually made with spinach but you know once you understand the link it makes sense you see these uh you know chinese like fried rice dishes you see you know potentially some uh some nigiri you know, japanese style sushi dishes um and then you see a ton of stuff with potato and the potatoes from peru originally yeah and then all these big, rich flavors. It's its a crazy amount of diversity that's captured in this one, you know, sort of beautiful cuisine.
0: Yeah, I mean, as a as a former chef and, you know, working in, in kind of London and then later in Buenos Aires, just to see the influence of that and just see how it, it really uh, became one of the hottest culinary destinations in the world and I think continues yeah. to be so. Um, on the Pisco side of things, it is funny that we do see drinks culture, lags slightly behind food culture, I think, but always generally taking inspiration from. I, it's an analogy yeah. we we bring up a lot on this show where we talk about the proliferation of, of bitter flavors in cooking and how that translated to an appreciation of aperitivo culture. Um, pisco itself is an ingredient. It's something I'm really excited about, um, mm-hmm. it, it, You know whether it's aged unaged, but you know, just as a, as a pure kind of eau de vie distillate, I think it's something that's absolutely incredible. I have had this feeling, um, maybe it's more of a hope that it will become more popular in the US. I do think though it is gaining traction. Uh, Mike, as someone who oversees uh, one of, if not the largest uh, program of, of Pisco in the United States, just in terms of like buying power, is that something that you're seeing yourself? Um,
1: is there some real positive momentum there? Yeah. So you know every every month every two months we're seeing a few more pisco producers you know coming into the U.S. Um, which is which is super exciting. There's still a huge gap um, in you know just consumer understanding. I think as bartenders we can find our way to understanding pisco a little bit more easily because we can say okay, eau de vie, we can say cognac, we can you know start to understand the uh, even the connection of wine to pisco right because pisco really is just distilled wine and the the great Piscos really celebrate the flavors of those those base uh, grapes, um, but for a lot of consumers, a lot of guests, uh, it's a challenge, right? And I and when I'm talking with pisco producers, you know, trying to figure out how we can better, uh, you know, ignite that excitement for guests around pisco, and I look at the way that um, the tequila world and, and mezcal as well. I look at the way that they've managed to you know, explode in popularity. And some of this is, you know, the the Mexican governments that, you know, kind of setting some standards and saying, all right, this is tequila, this is not. This is Mm -hmm. mezcal, this is not. And, you know, we can get into the weeds on which of those decisions are, do we think are right ones and which ones could maybe use a little bit of work. But at the end of the day, it's helped the category because you can now have a better understanding, even something as simple as, you know, uh, 100% agave, Made in Mexico, right? Um, the the aging requirements and standards in Peru. There's already a lot of regulation around the production of pisco. There's not as much oversight, and there's not as much, you know, there's not as much uh, transparency, right? In the tequila world, every bottle has a NOM. You can look up endless statistics. Um, and if you really want to try hard enough, you can find out who's making what, what equipment they're using, where they're sourcing their agave. And in Peru, it's a lot harder to find out you know, uh, what somebody's yield actually is. Where are they sourcing their grapes? Are they truly using 100% Pisco grapes or are they maybe sliding a few non-Pisco grapes in there, right? Um, the other thing too, I think that's challenging and we see this a little bit as well in the tequila world. Now people are are comfortable with tequila and they're more willing to trade up and to pay, you know, 30, 40, $50 for a shot, right? Not just a bottle, a shot. In the Pisco world, it's still very much, you know, the Pisco sour and that's kind of it, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's, you know, we, we're, we're sitting here talking about El Capitan. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an edge case, really. We don't really sell that many, uh, you put it on any menu and you'll sell a few out of interest, but it's not a, a driver the way that the Pisco Sour is. Mm-hmm. And so as long as it remains just the province of one culture and it's not really allowed to sort of proliferate into the cocktail zeitgeist in the mainstream, um, it's there's going to be this sort of perceived price cap on it, which makes it really challenging when you come to the market with a, a bottle of Pisco that's $35, $40, I wouldn't blink at putting a $35 or $40 tequila in a cocktail. Of course, I'm going to charge for it, but I know that somebody will pay that. You know, it gets to be a really challenging argument to put a $40 Pisco in a cocktail and then turn around and say, yeah, I'm, you're going to pay, you know, $20, $25 for this Pisco cocktail. And the reason is because the Pisco is incredible, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, we do a lot of education. We do a lot of outreach. We train our bartenders. We do, you know, flights. We do tastings. We create macerations, right? Infusions of different piscos, um, all of different all of these are different ways for us to try to get our guests to engage with the pisco outside of just engaging with it through the Peruvian lens, right? Mm-hmm. When somebody walks into a Peruvian restaurant outside of Peru, they're walking in because they want to participate in that culture. And a really easy way to do that is you just order the Pisco Sour. And then you'd say, wow, that's delicious. I'm gonna have another one. But then if you don't get something that, you know, has Pisco in it or taste the Pisco on its own, you just say, okay, Pisco Sour, Pisco, it's the same thing. You can't drink Pisco without putting it in a Pisco A hundred percent. That doesn't deserve us. yeah. Yeah,
0: I, I think that's a really great point. It's that, on the one hand, you have this very well-known cocktail, who 50% of the name is the base spirit that's tied to a specific culture. So you're like, great, That is that is something that so many other smaller spirits categories trying to break out internationally do not have. But mm-hmm. then you get to this point where people think, oh, Pisco is only used for that. And if I'm not in the mood right. for a Pisco sour, I'm not going to drink it. Maybe you can argue Pisco punch too, but I would say that's definitely lesser well known. Uh, mm-hmm. And then we get to El Capitan. Uh, I think, again, to go back to that top, to go back to the beginning, putting Pisco Manhattan on the menu might help you sell more of them, especially if you are in a Peruvian establishment. Um but so let's talk about the category. Let's talk about pisco and and for this cocktail specifically
1: mm-hmm. what kind of style of pisco are you looking for and why? So again, if we if you go and talk to a Peruvian bartender, they'll give you you know, five different reasons that it should be quebranta or it should be acholado or it should be this
0: or it should be that. Mm-hmm. Um, and can you just explain the differences between those two? Just remind us real quick. Yeah. Uh, we've had a couple of them on before, but can, yeah, if you can explain the differences very briefly there.
1: Sure. So the in, in Peru specifically, the pisco category, um, it's separated into puros, which are just one single grape varietal. Um, Achalados, which are a blend of two different grape varietals. The puros are comprised of aromatic and non-aromatic varietals, right? And that's, I don't want to say an arbitrary division um, because, you know, the, the non-aromatics are definitely less aromatic, but they are not like non-aromatic, right? Yeah. Um, and so typically an achilada would be a blend of an aromatic and a non-aromatic. The most famous non-aromatic varietal is Cabernet, And that's, you know, what you see in 99% of the piscos out there is going to be based on Cabernet, the most widely planted grape. Typically fairly high yield. Um, the most famous and most popular aromatic varietal is Italia. Um, and Italia Piscos, I, I love Italia Piscos. They're very soft and floral. Um, they've got a little bit of that sort of like tropical flower nose to it um, with just like hints of melon behind it. And then um, there's another style of Pisco called Mosto Verde. And verde is a relatively recent development where they only uh, they only ferment the pisco for about two days and they actually stop the fermentation before it's complete and so typically when you're making pisco, you press your grapes, you uh, pull the juice out you allow the juice to ferment um, you know the fermentation can take anywhere from five to six to seven days depending on the on the temperature uh, once it's completely fermented you'll distill it right because that's how you get the, the greatest possible yield. Um, with Mosa Verde, they stop that fermentation after two days and they distill immediately. And what that happens is what, what that what that creates is this uh, very rich, very luxurious, um, uh, also very expensive because it's about you know half the yield. But it's a very, very complex um and beautiful style of pisco. It does have a little bit of sweetness to it. I was gonna say, um, if you're cutting that yeah. fermentation, you're leaving some of that sugar in there, right? Yeah, yeah. And that sugar definitely comes through the still. Um, you know, I wouldn't ever call it a, a sweet Pisco. Right. Um, but it definitely has, you know, a little bit more of that sweetness than a Cabrante, which is a very dry, very, you know, like almost acidic style of Pisco. Um, and so you can use any of those styles to make El Capitan, to make really any Pisco cocktail. The nice thing is because the base structure is going to be the same, right? Similar levels of acidity, um, you know, typically around the same alcohol percentage. Uh, One of the rules in Pisco is you're not allowed to add anything to it after it comes off the fill, no water, you can't age it in anything that will change the color or the character, um, the Peruvian Pisco specifically. So, you know, typically Piscos are coming in around, you know, 38 to 42, 43%. um, And so that's a pretty narrow window, which lets you create a lot of variation without changing the overall structure too much, right? Um, So for El Capitan, broad spectrum, I typically go for achillado. The achillado, pisco, you know, you're gonna get that nice, you know, uh, driving line in the center from that quebranta, but you get a little bit of that aromatic um, uh, interest from, you know, the Italia or potentially, you know, another, uh, like a a, uh, Moscatel or something like that. Mm -hmm. Quebranta on its own is beautiful. And in that case, it's typically more of a sort of a celebration of the vermouth, right? So when you're creating El Capitan, if you're just going to serve a classic El Capitan cocktail, then I would suggest just go with a good quality achilado Pisco. You know, uh, pick your sweet vermouth. We'll get into that shortly. There's a million to choose from. Um, <laughs> and then just a little bit of Angostura bitters. And then when, when you're starting to really play around with it, Usually I say, just keep your Vermouth static, right? Whatever Vermouth you've picked that you like, start with that and then start playing around with different Piscos. And you can really see how all these different Piscos will really dramatically change the end result of this cocktail, right? Mm -hmm. And not just, not just the Pisco, right? Changing the ratio a little bit, you know, typically we'll do two ounces of Pisco to one ounce of Vermouth. Um, Try a three to one, try a four to one, um, you know, try an equal parts. And you can really see how it will evolve. So if you're mm-hmm. making this drink at home, um, the nice thing is, you know, you can you can just drink all of those experiments. And if you're developing something that you want to serve at your bar, you know, I would recommend doing a few taste tests if you really want to have something that's going to be uh, approachable to a lot of people. That two to one is a good place to start, but, mm-hmm. you know, maybe call a few of your regulars in, you know, get your managers, get people, not just people who are super into cocktails, like get some people who don't know anything because yeah. their, their palate is really important. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and make a few of these drinks and say, okay, you know, just blind
0: taste. What do you think? And for the folks who might be home bartenders on the other Mm -hmm. side of things, right? I am definitely not a fan in equating price to quality. Uh, (laughs) I think that, uh, you you know, we spoke about tequila as a category there. And I think that's somewhere where that's very apparent, but it's not the only place. Um, Mm -hmm. However, I do get folks, friends, people, colleagues, whatever, asking me, okay, so I'm in this category. How much should I roughly be spending to get something of quality, right? What's what's my baseline here to ensure that I don't walk out of that spirit store, that liquor store with a bottle and taste it once and be like, oh my God, I'm never going back to Pisco, right? Like what's what's yeah. kind of a sensible
1: price for for a, a first bottle for people to get into? I would be looking for something in the neighborhood of 20 bucks for a bottle. Oh, really? Um, for 750, yep. Wow. Wow. Um, you know if you go uh there's a there's a couple that you, where you can get down to like the fifteen to eighteen dollar range that aren't too bad um but the really really you know there's a bunch of of bargain basement piscos out there um most of them are not amazing quality mm-hmm. um, now I will say that because of the um the regulations around pisco production um it, it's hard to get a truly bad pisco right there's there's not too many that are just like you know like the the the, the issue that we had with tequila in the 50s right people were adding all these you know uh, metals and things like that to the tequila we don't have that issue with um with pisco but if you really want to taste a good quality pisco if you want something that's going to say that's going to really showcase what these grapes should be offering um twenty dollars I, I think is a, is probably the minimum wow that's that's a lot cheaper than
0: I was expecting i was I was thinking you might go in the thirty to forty bucks market and I was I was ready to part with my cash
1: so feeling yeah, good yeah. about this already I will say that um with Pisco uh, price very frequently does indicate a certain level of quality um there are not that many Piscos um i guess one of the things that we can be grateful for in the pisco world is we don't have um you know some of these like celebrity brands like you have in the tequila world where price is not an indicator of quality right Mm -hmm. Um, there's plenty of tequilas out there that are extremely expensive and that i personally would not touch with a you know two meter Mm -hmm. um with pisco though there are some good quality ones for for not a lot of money but you know, if you see a piece go for thirty or forty dollars, um, there's a almost one hundred percent chance that it's going to be a really solid, great quality piece. Go.
0: Mm-hmm. So moving on to vermouth, you mentioned uh, you would adopt a two to one approach and using sweet vermouth. Uh, let's start with that approach first, because then I want to get into some maybe alternative approaches to that, where things you can start to really uh, spice things up a
1: little. But sweet vermouth, where are you going first? So, the original remote that that they would have been using in Peru would have been cinzano um and it's a you know remotes like that like cinzano, martini, very classic right They use a lot of dittanney um this this uh, herb that it sort of has that like a uh, um uh, pizza flavor to it, right. Um, those are very traditional, very classic, right? That's usually my go-to for a Negroni, for example, because it pairs really nicely with all the botanicals in a good London dry gin. Um, that's probably where I would start, right? Because also, especially if you're a home bartender, you don't want to have, unless you're going to go down the vermouth rabbit hole, in which case I, I salute you, um, but uh, you don't want to have five, six, seven different bottles of, vermouth just sitting in your fridge, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you're constantly throwing these parties, because they do go bad after some time. Um, So I would suggest starting with a very traditional, very classic Italian-style vermouth. I've used vermouth like uh, Carpano, right? It has that big, bold vanilla note to it. Um, It's beautiful, and if you really want to wallow in vanilla, a Manhattan with Carpano and bourbon, I mean, it's it's lovely if you like vanilla. Um, I have found in the past that Carbono tends to sort of overpower a lot of the delicate um aromatics of uh, some of the really beautiful piscos. Um, there's also some lovely vermouths that are being made in Peru as well. Oh wow. Hard to find in the US sometimes. Um, we're working right now, you know, a lot of what I'm trying to do is is find cool proving ingredients and then see how we can get them into our restaurants in the US and restaurants in, you know, Europe and the Middle East. Um if you can find, you know, these, some of these Peruvian vermouths, definitely go for it. But, you know, you can also experiment with, you know, the, the cool vermouths that whatever city you're in, somebody's probably making a vermouth either in that city or the next one over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so the, the nice thing is that once you have sort of established a uh, a Pisco that you like and a general flavor profile and general structure, um, and you're like, okay, I really like this two to one or I really like three to one um then you know use up your vermouth go buy a different one try it out right uh there's a beautiful vermouth from from athens that i was able to try recently when i was out there Um, and it's lovely in uh in el capitan so Mm -hmm. we're opening a restaurant in athens next year that'll be on the menu and that was a that's a sweet vermouth there yeah exactly
0: fantastic all right now i'm going to throw a little curveball or or one of two perhaps um some folks approach the Manhattan, which I do enjoy. This uh, particular kind of interpretation of it is taking that vermouth component and approach and making it perfect, mm-hmm. i.e., splitting it with uh, sweet and dry, or maybe even sweet and bianco. Uh, mm-hmm. What advice can you give
1: us on that front? I mean, it's delicious. Um, the nice thing about the, uh, the the structure of El Capitan is that because it 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 sits in that same family um, as as the Manhattan. If you tried something with a Manhattan and you liked it, you can definitely try it with El Capitan. Um, it's subjective at the end of the day, right? I really enjoy a perfect Manhattan. My personal preference for El Capitan is 100% sweet. However, if you taste it and you find that, um, you know that that just that that sweet vermouth, if you, if it's not really being balanced out by uh, by the pisco, absolutely cut it with some dry. Um, I think the perfect works a little bit better if you're doing equal parts pisco and sweet vermouth Mm -hmm. Um, because pisco because it is a grape distillate those grapes do have a good amount of acidity that acidity does translate through uh, into the final distillates Um, you're going to find some of that acidity from the spirits along with the bitterness in those vermouths. that's going to help kind of balance out right a lot of people taste a, a bourbon manhattan for example or even rye manhattan and they say well it's good but it's a little on the sweet side um, and that's where that perfect structure definitely balances it out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, El Capitan, because it has that that almost malic acidity to it, it for me it doesn't need as much um, additional dryness in the terms of, in in the sense of adding dry vermouth. But you know my my palate is probably a little bit different than maybe somebody thinning at home. Mm-hmm. If you're making this drink at the bar, it's a great way to talk to your guests. If you know if they bring up or if you bring up the the, the perfect conversation. Um, it's an easy substitution. And if you're sitting at home, well, you, you should have both dry and sweet in your fridge anyway. So when there's nothing stopping you from giving it a shot. Give it a go. All right, third and final
0: approach here. Probably not the final approach, because as I said in the beginning, this this is you know easier to sell as a Manhattan, but can start to resemble a martini uh, for folks such as myself who might want everything in their glass to look like a martini, even if it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and using Driver Booth and Bianco. Maybe going, mm-hmm. you know, uh, maybe going perfect with that approach with the two parts piece go to perfect or maybe, you know, just playing around with those ratios, I think is, is probably something this is getting really far into the weeds. But just as a concept, yay or nay, Mike, can you get behind that or can you at least give us the green
1: light to try it? Hey, listen. Unless unless you're you're saying that I want to muddle you know um cyanide into my cocktail, I'm typically <laughs> gonna say yes, go for it, right? I've had i I've had lots of bartenders text me and say, hey, what do you think about this flavor profile? Try it. Just try it, right? Um for me personally, I've made El Capitan with a Bianco, um, just a straight, you know, two to one uh Tisco and Bianco. With a, with an aromatic pisco, I think it's really cool. Um, you know, I reach for something like an Italia or a Moscatel, pairing that with a nice Bianco. Because a Bianco vermouth, you're going to have that big vanilla influence. And so that vanilla really ties in really nicely with some of those um, tropical fruit notes or tropical floral notes that you get from those aromatic piscos. Um, You want to be a little bit careful because I think it does need a little bit of bitters to help sort of round it out. Angostura can be a little bit muscly for me in in that cocktail, um, you know. So I would maybe use something like an orange bitters or like a lemon bitters, right? Something that's a little bit less, you know, in your face. Uh, I will also say that when you're getting that far away from sort of the the core of what the drink is or was exactly as as i would say for a manhattan or you know a, a margarita or anything else there's only so far that you can stretch a classic cocktail before it sort of buds off and becomes its own thing Yep. and when all i mean by that is um and i guess this is a little bit more directed towards professional bartenders but if you put a drink on your menu and it just says manhattan or el capitan or Margarita it should be recognizably that thing great right? point there's a there's a point where it sort of just stops being in that thing and that's awesome call it a you know a modified this right mm-hmm. um you know uh, whatever you know vanilla vanilla el capitan come up with some qualifiers so that mm-hmm. a guest doesn't have that assume that that's what el capitan is el capitan blanco maybe yeah, that exactly. kind of thing exactly. right just so yep. you know yep.
0: yeah that's a great point a really really great point there um definitely going to try that one out at home later today just all the variations what if i just make three of them side by side i don't know i've got to dial in my specs here but uh you're definitely going to help us with at least one one aspect of the specs here today before we do though you mentioned bitters and i find it interesting that um it's not something that i'd seen always included in recipes and perhaps mm-hmm. in the early days uh wasn't it It was maybe when this started to be thought of more as a as a cocktail than a shot or whatever uh, is that is that the case? And you mentioned Angostura before.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, um, if you if you look at the, the 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 origins of the cocktail, there definitely was no Angostura in there. Um, you know, and it's uh, there's a few ways I think to to think about the evolution of this. Number one is um, you know if the cocktail sort of fully morphed into its modern format in New York, right at the Waldorf then it's likely that they were just thinking of it as a pisco manhattan and if it you know whatever you do for the manhattan just do it for the for the, the pisco version and it will make sense um on the other hand, you know peru like i said it is a a, a melting pot right and so there's, you know, a lot of people coming in from um, from the U.S. who are bringing cocktail culture with them. There's a lot of people coming in from the Caribbean, um, you know, where they would have had ready access to Angostura bitters. So it feels like a very natural evolution. That being said, um, you know, much like with Manhattans, right? You, you know, you and I can sit here in our sort of cocktail ivory palaces and just assume that everybody knows that you put Angostura bitters in a Manhattan. That is not the case. Um I've I've you know I've traveled a lot. I've opened a lot of bars. I've talked to a lot of people, bartenders and you know civilians. And I would say maybe eighty seventy percent of people assume or understand that you know bitters goes into a Manhattan. So the Angostura would be the classic. You know we use that as well for the for the Tisco sour. Um, but it's another area where you can really play around and try unique things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know we've recently we did a version with um, where we're actually Blending our pisco along with um, a, a little more sort of neutral sweeper vermouth, right? It doesn't have that big Disney bomb. It doesn't have that big vanilla bomb. Um, and then we're actually adding uh, chocolate bitters, right? So it's got a, nice. like that nice dark cacao note to it. Um, again, chocolate's a, you know, there's a ton of cacao that grows in Peru. We make beautiful, beautiful beans. Um, so chocolate's another sort of, you know, very natural cultural fit. And just that by itself was delicious. We've actually also then thrown that into um, a small five liter wooden barrel and just aged it for, you know, like a month. Um, And that helps with some oxidization. Um, It gives it a little bit of that, you know, if you leave it in too long, it gets that kind of sawdustiness that that I'm not a fan of, but just a little bit of time in that barrel, um, you get just a hint of vanilla, just a hint of oxidation um, and a nice kind of round maturity to it.
0: Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Um, final component of this cocktail is, of course, going to be the garnish. You mentioned your your preference mm-hmm. earlier to maybe towards a, a a kind of orange twist there, which t- makes a lot of sense. You did also mention uh, a local custom, which would be the olive. Um, mm-hmm. And as as I understand it, you know, folks, uh, limenos would that be the name? People from Lima or, mm-hmm. or, or Peru, Peruvians in general, when sipping pisco neat, you wouldn't be too uncommon to find uh, an olive making its way into the glass there.
1: Yeah, I mean. It 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 also very much depends on where you are. Um, you know, a lot of times though, if you're if you're, uh, you know, tasting pisco on its own, um, usually if there's an olive involved, it'll be on the sides, right? So you you're able to sip and then just have a little bit of salty Ooh. something to, to help wash it down. Um, you know, very it's it's the the like the standard bar snacks, right? Um, most places that I've been to in in Lima, at least, um, where I've ordered El Capitan, uh, it comes with an olive in the glass and. You know, the first time I, I I ordered that, it was similar to the first time I went to a supper club in in Wisconsin, and I ordered uh, an old fashioned because you know I know what an old fashioned is, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Wisconsin has its own old fashioned culture, <laughs> and uh, I thought I knew the answers. You know, brandy, old fashioned, um, you know, sweet. Okay, good, good, good. And then the bartender asked me if I wanted. Um, a pickled mushroom or a pickled Brussels sprout. And I, <laughs> my, my brain just sort of glitched. I was like, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, and I had a, I, I just had a very similar feeling the first time I went to a bar in Lima and I ordered El Capitan. And it just, there was no discussion. It just came out with an olive in it. And so for me, once I tasted it, it made sense, right? I a little bit of that saltiness. Um, salt helps to uh, reduce the impact of bitterness in a cocktail. And, uh, there's less of an appreciation for some of those bitter flavors, um, in, in a lot of the, hmm. especially a lot of the classic Peruvian bars. Um, they're not as much in, enamored with those like overridingly bitter flavors that a lot of, you know, especially cocktail, um, snobs are right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the Peruvian sort of drinking just all tends to lean a little bit more on the sweet side, um, and definitely leans on the, on the boozy side. But like I said, the, once I tasted it, the inclusion made, it made total sense. Um, it definitely threw me for a bit of a loop. So for us, you know, we operate, uh, Acurio International, the international non-Peruvian arm of Acurio restaurants. Um, we operate, you know, Peruvian restaurants. And although we, we have a lot of Peruvians who come and see us because Gaston is, is, you know, he's a, he's a hero. Um, you know, our core sort of audience is non-Peruvians. And so we're really trying to, you know, we want to show them authentically Peruvian things, but we also don't want to scare them too much, right? And so for us, throwing that orange peel on top is a great way to sort of branch people in and say, okay, you like this. Here's a thing that's not too far away from the thing you like. It's not going to challenge you too much. It'll challenge you a little bit, Right, so we're just kind of we're sort of like boiling the frog, as it were, trying to get people deeper and deeper until, mm-hmm. um, you know, we can we can hit them with that uh, that that pickled Brussels sprout. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I think on the flip side of things, there, you know, um, I recently had a situation where I was, at, you know, at a bar with some colleagues uh, who love cocktails, and oftentimes they're coming up to me and they're being like, "What should I order? I want to try something different. What should I order? Like, what's a and what's like what's also." a lesser known classic that this bar will probably have all the ingredients for that I should try. Uh, Today, I am adding El Capitan to that repertoire, especially with the olive, because I think, you know, provided the bar has Pisco, Mm -hmm. we know they're going to have everything else. I think that's such a cool little move. And again, if you're a regular cocktail drinker, if you're an enthusiast, if you're a bartender, that one little detail of it, could be uh and you know no pun intended here you you know the cherry on the top or the olive on the top you know what i mean it's just like a (laughs) nice cool little selling point but yeah like you said that that orange twist instead is kind of like this really nice we're holding your hands we're slowly guiding you into this drink and into you know this category of drinks really in a way um Mm -hmm. mike how about it how about you go ahead now and tell us your preparation of the drink
1: as if you were making it for us here in the virtual studio sure um yeah, so very simply, uh, I'm going to select a nice pisco, um, probably an anchoato, something that has um, you know a good proportion of Italia along with that cibonanta. So two ounces of that, one ounce of a good quality sweet vermouth, and you know, um, w- without going down the rabbit hole of the hundreds of amazing vermouths out there, something as simple as Cinzano will work perfectly. Um, you know, two dashes of Angostura bitters, and uh, for the for the the, the ultra nerds out there, we all know that Angostura bitters bottle dashes differently if it's chock full versus half empty versus all the way full. So, two dashes from a half empty bottle of Angostura bitters, um, nice. And then nice. Uh, pour that into a mixing glass. We'll add our ice. Uh, we'll stir it, and um, you know, just give it a quick taste. Strain that into a chilled cocktail coupe. Um, and then, you know, because I'm I'm virtually making this for you in the virtual studio, uh, I know that you appreciate the olive and you want something that's a little bit more exotic, a little bit more authentic. So the olive will go right on top, um, you know, and then served with uh, eye contact and a smile. Fantastic, Mike. And and those, those details there
0: with the bears, that's exactly what we're all about here at Cocktail College. So <laughs> thank you for clarifying on that one. Um, before we head into our five weekly questions to wrap up the episode today,
1: any final thoughts on El Capitan? You know, I think it's a drink that is, it's really slept on. Um, people love Manhattans. I mean, you know, uh, I was taught, just last night I was in the restaurant chatting with a a guest and we had just put a new old fashioned on the menu. And he's like, you know, everybody is just super into old fashioned. All I want is a Manhattan so I was like, have you had El Capitan? Nope, never even heard of it. Fantastic. I'm going to blow your mind. Um, you know, it's got a lot of uh, a lot of room for variation, a lot of room for personalization, um, you know, and it's a great way to expand your experience with Pisco beyond the Pisco Sour.
0: Phenomenal. I love it. Um my wife is also a big, big Manhattan drinker. I'm sure she's never had El Capitan. Uh I think as soon as we, we hit uh stop on the recording here today, I'm gonna go up and, and raid the old vine pear liquor cabinet to see what pisco we have hang- you know, hanging around, maybe make the classic version for herself, maybe play around with some different removes for myself. Uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. But before we do that, before we before we hit stop on the old record, let's get into those questions, beginning with number one. Mm-hmm. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back
1: bar? Um, professionally, Pisco, uh, I, and that's probably not a big surprise. I know <laughs> I, I am the beverage director for a Peruvian restaurant company. Um, and if I said anything else, uh, my boss would be on the phone with me immediately after I hung up. Um, it's also, I mean, there's an incredible amount of variety and variation, different producers, different grapes, different styles, different regions throughout uh, Peru. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful spirit that people need to drink more of.
0: Wonderful. Question number two: Which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most
1: undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? The cheating to say, "peace, Um <laughs> <laughs> You know, i um, I have tested pretty much every tool on the market. Um, you know, I think that all of the the, the you know the, the hundreds of cocktail tools that are available. Um, most of them don't really add much, right? I've, you know, every time somebody creates a new thing that solves the problem, a lot of it, t- a lot of the time, it's just a solution that's looking for a problem. Right? Mm-hmm. What I will say is if you aren't using a classic, um, if you aren't using a mandolin to cut a lot of your garnishes, that's the, the, the easiest and biggest upgrade that you can make, get a chain mail glove with it. Um, You know, especially if you don't do it for a living. Uh, Actually, no, even more so if you do it for a living, because you
0: can avoid the worst job. Oh, my God. (laughs) And keep those blades sharp, by the way, as well, because that's the other thing. Uh Yeah. Oh, one too many times I've chopped off a little piece of my finger on those things, and that is uh, not a fun few days for you right there.
1: What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? I think the most important piece of advice that I've ever received was... um, <laughs> uh it it it's silly. So probably the most impactful piece of advice I got was um to wear uh dress shirt and pants to corporate meetings. And it may seem like this is a no-brainer, right? When I was a, a relatively young, you know, bartender just transitioning into more of a corporate role, um, you know, i I tend to be a pretty flamboyant, flashy person. And I would wear, you know, just like pink booty shorts, and you know, I had a bright pink mohawk, and <laughs> um, and and some of that, you know, that's that's that was good for the company because they can point to this guy who's authentically, you know, a little little punk rock. He's not just like this corporate guy. Um, and then, uh, but I was having a hard time, you know, with people taking me seriously in these meetings where I'm saying, you know, we want to invest in our bartenders and do this training and do that. And finally, you know, somebody, one of my colleagues, pulled me aside and he was like, "Listen, it would be great." To see you in, you know, a button-down shirt and, you know, even just some jeans, and I know that it sounds like it should be really, really obvious, um, but what it really taught me was that, you know, you can be authentically yourself, but at the same time, understand that sometimes you've got to adapt a little bit, right, to get the work done. To, you, you can't just like smash the system. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to, to, you know, to buy in and kind of work within the system. Mm-hmm. So, And that's not selling out to the man, man. You know, like, that's just a
0: great, solid piece of advice there. Yeah, yeah. The whole movie, FLG punk is based on that. (laughs) (laughs) Lister, I can confirm for you here today, though, that Mike is rocking the pink mohawk and pink shorts right now. It's fantastic. (laughs) So uh, it's been a fun interview on that front. (laughs) Uh, Question number four. If you could only visit one last bar in your life,
1: what would it be? So bars are super subjective, right? And um, for me... The bar, and I I wouldn't say the bar that still exists right now, but the bar memory and the bar experience that was one of the most impactful for me was um, the first time I walked into the Violet Hour back in 2007. And at the time I was, um, you know, I was uh, still sous chef at at a a Michelin star restaurant. I was still, you know, deep in my cooking career. I had started bartending a little bit, um, but I remember walking into the Violet Hour and pushing past these heavy velvet curtains and the room was super dark and lit up with candles. Um, and I just was, was transported. And at the time in Chicago, even across the U S there were a few bars that were doing this right. Death and co and, um, you know, milk and honey places that were designed to be an intentional, you know, throwback, right. Uh, Intentionally anachronistic and, Sure. They were snooty and kind of snobby. And if you didn't play by the rules and if you didn't come and worship at the altar of the cocktail, you probably weren't going to have the best time, but I really loved and appreciated the commitment to that concept. Right. And if you're in, if you buy in great, you're going to have an awesome time, you know, that, that bar experience memory. And now I try to temper it with trying to be more hospitable and making sure that we're reaching out to more people and not just saying, you don't like it, get the hell out. Um, but like that—that that experience of just being completely transported—is something that I—I I hold really dear, and I, you know, I always try to recreate in our restaurant. Mm-hmm.
0: Wonderful. All right, Mike. Final question for you here today: If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make?
1: Um, depends. If it's because uh, the end is near, then it's like seven ounces of Everclear. Um, just like let's get it over with. <laughs> um, <laughs> The, the more serious answer to that question, though, um, would be a cocktail called The Art of Choke, created by um, my former colleague, Kyle Davidson. We worked together at Violet Hour back in the day. Kyle is an absolutely genius bartender who should get a lot more attention for the innovative cocktail structure that he's created. I had that drink shortly after the first time I pushed into the Violet Hour and just like had my mind sort of blown. And this cocktail is what really ignited my excitement for cocktails and cocktail creation beyond just the classics, right? i learned about Manhattans and old fashions and, you know, was starting to understand that the daiquiri wasn't just frozen and things like that. And Kyle made me the Art of Choke, which, you know, is a chinar, you know, very bitter cocktail, lots of chinar, a little bit of rum, um, you know, chartreuse. There's lime juice in there, but it's stirred. I mean, it breaks all the rules, mm-hmm. right? There's mint. It's just sort of like lightly bruised. It's not even muddled. Um, it's there, there's so much complexity and subtlety in this cocktail and I had that drink and I, I, like my, you know, with my background as a chef as well, it's hard for me to be surprised by flavors sometimes, right? You're like, yeah, I've tried that. I've tried that. I've tried that. There's nothing new under the sun. This was something new under the sun and I've made it myself and it's delicious. Um, but if I was going to have one last one, it would be, you know, teleport Kyle here with all the ingredients <laughs> as it in make it for me. <laughs> and, and then you know, I don't know, hopefully I don't have to make him watch me die or something.
0: <laughs> it is true though. What a singular, unique, rule-breaking drink that, that kind of is the, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it, it's such a rule breaker. Those ingredients shouldn't work together, but what a fantastic invention. Um, Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a blast. I think this has been Super interesting one. And I'm sure there's so many listeners out there like myself who like to have that secret little card that they can pull out and they be like, oh, watch this. I'm going to blow your mind with a cocktail you've never heard of. But is it also simultaneously familiar? It's El Mm -hmm. Presidente. El Presidente? No, it's not. It's El Capitan. (laughs) Mike, thanks for joining us today. Cheers, Tim. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Cocktail College podcast. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seasai, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Malin, editor-in-chief Joanna Chirino, and art director Daniel Greenberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.